Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Viva McHugh, written by Jay Flynn. McHugh can outshoot, outthink, outfight, and outlove any other secret agent on the planet. Get out of the way, James Bond, before your tux gets rumpled. McHugh lands a Caribbean island assignment. Stir up a revolution. Topple the world's most brutal dictator. Smash the secret police whose methods start with torture and get a lot worse from there. Help the revolutionaries and stop the revolution before it goes too far in the other direction. It's just another day's work for McHugh. When he arrives, he has everything the government thinks he will need for the job. One bottle of tablets in case of Montezuma's revenge. Three days rations. A small radio. Bug repellent. Extra clothes. The minimum two pistols with extra ammo. A pair of delicately balanced throwing knives. And three pints of scotch. He also must rescue another U.S. agent from the dungeon of the island's most impregnable prison. But that's the easy part. All he has to do is survive days of torture, the kisses of a revolutionary who is as ruthless as she is beautiful, a deadly double-cross, and the lack of decent scotch when his own supply runs out. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Viva McHugh. Chapter 1 The plane was a gliding black shape on the star-pocked Caribbean night. It slanted down toward the surface of the lagoon without lights, its progress marked only by the muted throb of its engines and the sputtering blue-orange flames from the exhausts. The landing lights flicked momentarily, spraying silver on the rippled water. They were answered by three flashes from the jungle-ringed shore. Bud Chapman cut the throttles back, changed the angle of the flaps slightly. The stubby cigar moved from one side of his mouth to the other as he eased the yoke back. Hole met water with the sound of a muffled gunshot, and the amphibian rocked on its wing floats. In the co-pilot's seat, McHugh expelled his breath and unbuckled his safety belt. His eyes strained through the darkness, found the thin strip of white sand that marked the shore. Better take it all the way in, he said in a low voice. He unhooked the jungle carbine from the rack above his head, rammed a thirty-shot clip in place. A moon of orange fire was climbing from the depths of the sea, outlining the mountain ridges of the island. The boat's on its way, Mac. So's the gendarmerie, I think. McHugh put a cigarette in his mouth, cupped his hands around a flaring match. The flickering light showed a face with a lean, strong jawline, penetrating eyes, high cheekbones. The nose was slightly bent, the result of an old break. The light was not strong enough to show the faint line of a scar that angled downward across his left cheek. The hair was dark, close-cropped, salted with gray. He drew on the cigarette. I spotted a couple of headlights coming down from the hills. The curfew is on, so they have to be military. We can't chance the time to load the stuff in a boat and unload again on the beach. Chapman moved the throttles in their quadrant. The throb of the engines increased in pitch and the plane waddled toward shore. He eyed the carbine. Hearts didn't tell us to shoot our way in. McHugh grinned around the cigarette. He told us to get in, bring Calvi back. How we do it is up to us. Always the hard way, 
We've got all kinds of faked-up papers available, but our devious leader can't see sending us in like tourists or white slavers. He thinks it'll work better with the airplane bit. Don't worry. The underground knows you're coming and they'll pick you up. I swear that man lives to see us sweat. Old Hardway hearts. I raised the point, McHugh said placidly. He thought about it, but they've been grabbing too many of our people at the port of entry, mostly tourists who maybe said the wrong thing or just didn't look right to their secret police. They've held a few and then let them go, with apologies, which they wouldn't do with us. He says, Chapman gambled, Fat boy, we've been around too long on this route. Hart says too many people in too many places have had a look at one or the other of us. He figures our chances will be a lot better if we get in before they know we're coming. He stifled a half-yawn. I sort of agree. Yeah, just so we don't start a war, or otherwise disturb the cookie-pushers at state. They're always disturbed about something. McHugh left his seat and went back in the cabin. Burvo had the gear stacked by the cabin door. His angular form appeared to be all bony arms and legs and extended neck as he worked under the pale blue light. McHugh squatted beside him, checking the packages and their waterproof wrappings. Atabrine and tablets intended to frustrate Montezuma's revenge. Rations for three days, three pints of scotch, extra ammo for the pistols, and a pair of delicately balanced throwing knives. Bug repellent, extra clothes, the minimum. A small radio. We're going all the way in, McHugh said. He squinted through a window. At least the ocean was on its good behavior. They were within twenty yards of shore, and there was no surf on the lee side of the island. Stand by until we make the beach, then move out smartly. Taxi until you're around the neck of land. Report to the general immediately? It can wait until you're back at Miami. The opposition is monitoring our frequencies. Anyway, there'll be nothing to tell hearts except that we went in. The angular man hunkered down, squatting on his heels. He was from the hill country of Kentucky and this was one of the habits rigid training by one of the world's least known intelligence agencies had failed to eradicate. Burvo was the only man McHugh knew who spoke Mandarin Chinese with a drawl. Now he cleared his throat and scratched his ear. Look, Mac, if things go wrong on the beach, well, you fly the goose out. That's an order. If they jump us, it won't make any difference whether there's two or three but we'll need both you and this bird to get us out when we pick Calvi up. Yes, sir. McHugh could feel Burvo's pale eyes on him. Who in the hell is Calvi? Why do we want him? Calvi was one of us. Hart sent him here five months ago. We think he defected, or he may have been captured. Either way, we want him. The plane lurched as a wing float scraped sand. One of the motors roared briefly and the amphibian swung around its nose pointed out to sea again. Chapman came into the cabin, moving without sound on soles of sponge rubber. He was a big man who gave a false impression of being fat. He was also one of the best airplane pilots in the world, and one of the top-ranked counterintelligence agents of the top-secret bureau who worked out of the windowless room deep in the Pentagon maze. He had been in Zurich when the summons came from Brigadier General Burton Hartz. McHugh had been in San Francisco. This is as close as we go. The launch is swinging around, but it's still a couple of hundred yards away. He unlocked the cabin door, peered into the night, motioned to McHugh. The two men stepped into knee-deep water. McHugh had the carbine slung from his shoulder. 
they gathered the parcels and waited for the beach. The water was warm, its surface dappled now by the rising moon. The bulky shape of the plain would be unmistakable to anyone on the shore. Ahead there was the impenetrable blackness of the jungle, and beyond it the grim bulk of the mountains. There was a faint light to the west, where the city grew on the narrow coastal plain at the mouth of a river which bisected the island. The night was silent except for the whisper of the idling propellers and the muffled chugging of the launch's engine. They were out of the water now, slogging across twenty yards of beach. Sand filled their shoes and clung to their pants. They had almost reached the first line of trees when the searchlight came on. It speared from the launch, fingered the plane. McHugh cursed, ran for the nearest clump of trees. He dropped his gear, flattened on the ground, brought the carbine to his shoulder, sighted at the light. His finger rested lightly on the trigger. He forced himself to wait. The amphibian's engines were revving up. The props made silver circles, whipped up plumes of spray from the sea. The plane moved sluggishly, then gathered speed as Burvo rammed the throttles wide open. Bud Chapman dropped down beside McHugh. He swore and said, Something went sour. That's a government reception committee. Knock that damned light out. Wait a little. McHugh was tracking the light in his sights, studying it carefully. The motorboat was fast, but it was bucking a series of swells. He guessed it was about two hundred yards from the beach. The jungle carbine might hit something at a hundred yards. At two hundred from this spot, it would do little but throw lead in the general direction of Bermuda. Too far, he said. Besides, Burvo is outrunning them. The way that thing's bouncing, they couldn't hit a whale in the butt. Unless they've got a machine gun, Chapman snapped, which is just about it. The staccato sounds reached them now. The machine gun's muzzle flared in long bursts. Makes it different. McHugh put the carbine on full automatic. He took a good lead on the speedboat, fired a burst of a dozen shots. The light did not go out. The machine gun started up again as the amphibian hoisted itself into the air. He sighted again, slightly higher, and held the trigger down. The light gun bucked against his shoulder. As the clip emptied, the searchlight flared and went out. The sound of the powerful inboard changed in pitch, became uneven. The boat lost way and gradually swung toward shore. McHugh rammed the spare clip into the carbine, set it for semi-automatic fire, pushed the safety on. Well, Burvo made it, but I guess they know we're here. They know somebody's here, Chapman replied. Best we go somewhere else, like Hawaii or the Riviera. McHugh got to his feet. The people in the launch were showing no sign of being anxious to come ashore. For a full minute he studied the contours of the small lagoon, picking out the large rocks at the southern end, the tall cluster of palms to their left. According to the maps they had studied, they should be about a quarter mile from the paved road that followed the coast along this part of the island. A dirt road linked the highway with the beach. There was a fishing village within a mile. It was the only marked settlement between their position and the capital city. I'd be happier without this moon, Chapman whispered. We should be fifty yards or so from that trail, if the map was right. I think I see it. Yeah, take a good look, because that's one place we're not going. It's the only trail. And that's where I'd wait for us to toddle along. This is not our night for easy living, fat boy. The militiamen are thick like sand fleas down the road apiece. That leaves us the weed patch. Chapman squatted down on the sand, scowled at the circling launch. They're waiting. Figure they've got us pinned down. 
They could be right, but we've got until morning. McHugh's throat was dry. He found one of the bottles of scotch, opened it, drank and passed it over. Chapman wiped his mouth. What makes you think so? I've been here before. The dictator's bully boys are great fighters, if they outnumber the other guy ten to one, and they've got plenty of cover and concealment. They like it better if the other side has no water, food, or ammunition. They know we're here, but they don't know how many of us. The tropic night was humid. McHugh could feel the sweat forming on his forehead. He had another small drink. He wished he was back in San Francisco, where the fog was cool and gray, the nights lively in the offbeat bar called The Door that he and Loris ran when he wasn't on a mission. Chapman checked the luminous dial of his watch. He sighed. Burvo's halfway back to Florida by now. An hour and he'll be diverting himself in the flesh pots of Miami Beach. And where in the hell do you suppose Schultz is? How should I know? We'll find him when we get to the city. If we get to the city, Chapman amended. Yeah. McHugh studied the line of the shore again. I was never much for crawling through jungles at night, and by morning there'll be half an army waiting for us. I think we can make that fishing village inside of an hour. We're not supposed to show there, remember? We're to stay out of sight, at least until we get to Schultz. We weren't supposed to have a reception committee either. That changes the script. Come on. They picked up their gear, struck out along the edge of the beach, keeping in the shadow of the tropical growth. I'm about to throw these shoes away, Chapman whispered after they had walked for five minutes. They've got more sand in them than feet. Keep them. You don't run worth a damn barefoot. They went on, moving with the caution of raiders in enemy territory. They circled patches of moonlight, spoke only in whispered words that were covered by the soft hiss of the surf. Somewhere ahead of them a dog barked. It was joined by a second and a third. McHugh listened closely to the yelps. Dogs meant people, and the only people around would be those at the fishing village. He looked over the contour of the land, up at the dark bulk of a mountain. In the distance they heard the rumble of the speedboat. It seemed to be patrolling several hundred yards offshore. Hey! Chapman stopped him with a touch on the arm. Doesn't the dictator's constabulary have a layout at this village? Yeah, mainly to keep people like us from hitting the beach. Then I think we'd better go someplace else. This is perfect. They won't be looking for us. We might be able to arrange some transportation. You did that once in this kind of place. That mule fixed it so I couldn't sit down for days. It was a burrow. Anyway, I'm thinking of a jeep or sedan or something. The constabulary should have some wheels lying around. You are the world's best argument against the accumulation of portable property, Chapman said with resignation. Let's go. The shore curved, narrowed down to a point of land. Here the tropical growth was less dense, the hills more barren. They came around the tip of the point, to a cove that was about a quarter mile across. The moonlight showed a cluster of small houses, mud-walled and thatch-roofed, and several thin finger piers. Darkened boats rocked in a ground swell and settled back to their moorings. Only one of the buildings near the water's edge showed light. The sound of a guitar and calypso singing carried across the water. There was a larger building, walled and well-lighted, on the side hill above the village. As they watched, Wide gates opened and a truck rolled out slowly. The gates closed. The dogs barked again. There it is, McHugh said. I figured the calaboose would be the biggest building in town. 
I don't want to find out how big it is from the inside. Just how do we go about this? Maybe we could get some suggestions at the cantina, McHugh said with a nod toward the other lighted building. And they won't see anything strange in a couple of Norte Americanos strolling in off the street, with combat rations and a couple of pistolas and a carbine. McHugh, you sure it's only scotch in that bottle? McHugh chuckled. We stash the stuff. Keep your pistola out of sight. There's a lot of lighter blood mixed with the Latin in this country. We both speak Spanish. We should pass. My God, Chapman muttered. He followed without speaking again as McHugh led the way across a field and stepped out casually on one of the two unpaved streets of the village. McHugh walked until he came to a clump of bushes. He carefully stowed their gear out of sight, then looked up the hill toward the garrison. The gates were opening again, and they watched a jeepload of men drive out and turn at high speed toward the beach where they'd landed. They were about two hundred feet from the cantina. What do we do if someone comes along before we get there? Chapman whispered. Speak Spanish, damn it. McHugh drew a deep breath. Walk up to the nearest house and pee on it. Hardly anybody ever questions a man then. What he's doing is too obvious. The cantina was lighted by oil lamps. A faded sign over the door identified it as the Boom Boom Club. At the moment, a native was booming on a pair of bongo drums, and a man with a guitar was singing. There was a short, rough-planked bar where several men drank canned beer. There were three unoccupied tables against the opposite wall. The man behind the bar looked at them with naked fear in his eyes. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Viva McHugh. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.